It is good to be together this morning. Let me welcome you. My name is Rob. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do that. Best way to catch me is just sometime when I'm up here teaching after the service, just come down and say hello, and I'd love to put a name with a face. Welcome to Fellowship. We have some information for you if you're a guest that I'll get to at the end of the service and a couple other announcements we'll cover then. But in the meantime, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We've been in this series in the book of Ruth now for a number of months, and believe it or not, we're getting very close to the end. This morning, we are starting the fourth chapter, which is the last chapter. And as we've been learning through the series, Ruth is a love story, just not the kind of love story you typically think of. It's a love story about God's faithfulness to his people, about his loyal, steadfast love expressed through human beings to other human beings in need. The subtitle of our series has been Ordinary Providence. And just a reminder, providence simply means God's in control of it all. Everything passes through his hands. And as we've reached the last chapter, I thought it might be helpful and appropriate to put the four chapter headings as an outline on the screen. We talked about this the very first week. This is the best way to understand the way we've been teaching through this book. Chapter one, God's providence is hard. Chapter two, God's providence is hard to see. Chapter three, God's providence works with your faith. And chapter four, God's providence brings our good and his glory. And the four key words, weeping, working, waiting, this morning we start talking about worshiping as the story is going to take a turn toward a very happy ending. We're going to cover the first 12 verses of chapter 4 next week. Lloyd will come and finish out the final verses of the text. And then two weeks from now, we'll wrap up the book with a summary message. Uh, this morning, the text is going to follow this little outline. If you're taking notes, the opportunity for six verses, the transaction, verses 7 to 10, the blessing, verses 11 to 12. So... I want to jump right in, but in order to set this up, let me just remind us where we are in the story. So chapter four takes place the morning after Operation Threshing Floor, if you all remember that. Ruth had gone to Boaz in the middle of the night, laid down beside him, uncovered his feet, laid at his feet. And when Boaz woke up, she essentially made it clear that she was wanting to marry Boaz. She invited him to live into his identity as a family redeemer and rescue her and her mother-in-law. Naomi and Boaz says yes but there's just one problem there is another relative who is a closer relative than I am and he has the first right of redemption according to the law so the last thing we know about the night before is Boaz promises Ruth look I'll go to this guy in the morning I'll ask him if he's interested in being the redeemer if he says yes great but if he says no I will do it I promise and then we get to the next morning and we have a scene change now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. From the threshing floor, we're now at the city gate and that's significant. The city gate in that time and culture was a little bit like our public square where you'd run into people where, you know, the, the, the cool people would hang out, so to speak, which is obviously true because the elders are there. That was an elder joke. The first service didn't get it either. That's fine. <laughs> so check that off my, my list. I've now told an elder joke. Never do that again. <laughs> 
The, the gate of the city is where you would do commerce, but most importantly for our text, it's also where you would go to do a legal transaction. And so the presence of the elders is important. It's a public space, which is important. And for the transaction that Boaz had in mind, he needed three parties, himself, this other relative who was a closer family member, and then he needed the elders there. And it's interesting how the text repeats the phrase sat down to sort of indicate that they were all there. So Boaz sat down, and then later that redeemer, the closer relative, sat down, and then finally the elders sat down. So what I think the narrator's doing is kind of building the courtroom drama, the tension. It's like everybody's there, all eyes are on Boaz. Of course, this other relative guy has no idea why Boaz has called him into this, you know, sort of formal environment, this meeting, but he's about to find out. One more thing before we move on from these verses. There's a little Easter egg hidden in the Hebrew text. It's kind of fun. It's actually pretty important as well. If you look at the word friend, in Hebrew, it's not the word friend. In Hebrew, it's two words. Peloni almoni. That's how you would transliterate it into English. Now, no one kind of giggled, but if you were Hebrew speakers, you would all giggle because what you would know is Poloni Almoni doesn't mean anything. It's a gibberish phrase. It's two words put together because they sound kind of funny. They rhyme, Poloni Almoni. You know, it reminds me of Poloni. Poloni Almoni. Now, Poloni Almoni in that day, actually, it, it was similar to saying so-and-so a person or such-and-such such a place. It's, it's if you didn't know the person's name or you couldn't remember the person's name or maybe you didn't want to say the person's name. So, for example, in that culture, you know, the, the, the lady says, well, well, Who'd you go out with last night? Ah, uh, you know, Poloni Almoni, you know, so-and-so. I went out with so-and-so. Or where'd you go? At Poloni Almoni. So this is how they would use this phrase. It's, it's a little Easter egg because the narrator is communicating something by not calling this guy his name. Now, Boaz would never have said this to this man. So in the moment it happened, he would have said his name. But the narrator, in summarizing what happened, uses this very funny, interesting Hebrew phrase. He's intentionally drawing attention to the fact that history did not preserve this guy's name. He's basically calling him Mr. So-and-so. I think that would be a better translation than friend. He's saying, turn aside, so-and-so, you know, Mr. Anonymous. You're going to see why this matters a little bit later. By the way, quick application. If you're a teenager in the room and you think these sermons never have any application for you, next time your parents ask who you're going out with, just say Poloni Almoni. It's in the Bible. And you can thank me for that later. Let's see what happens. Verse 3, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Wow, this comes out of nowhere. This is the first time we've heard anything about land that was going to be a part of this deal. We thought that Boaz was going to talk to him about marrying Ruth. It turns out he's talking to him about redeeming land. What is going on here? Well, here's what you need to know. In the Old Testament... People didn't buy and sell land the way we buy and sell land today. It, God's design and intent for the land was that it would stay in the possession of the family who owned it. 
and it would be passed on from generation to generation to generation. So notice, he's calling it Elimelech's land. Elimelech has long since died, but it still belongs to this family unit, and that's God's intention. So when a family was in danger of losing their land, as this family was, that could happen because of poverty, that could happen maybe the, you know, the patriarch dies, as he did in this case, the law encouraged the closest relative to purchase the land for that family that could no longer you know, afford to keep it, and then that extended family would essentially redeem that land by keeping it in the clan. That's the opportunity Boaz is presenting here. The opportunity for the closest relative to purchase Elimelech's land so it can stay in the family. Now, of course, it would cost the redeemer something. He was going to have to buy the land, but it would also benefit him because now he would own this land for his family unit and he would pass it on to his inheritance and to his Children. In essence, Boaz is saying, you get the first opportunity to buy this land, but if you're not interested, let me know because I want it. I'll take it. And the closer relative responds, I'll take it. I want it. No surprise. It's an opportunity to add to his long-term wealth. But what he doesn't know is Boaz has not shown all his cards. There is an ace in the hole in the form of a very relevant piece of information that is about to be revealed. Take a look at verse 5. Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. How quickly he changed his mind. Turned out Ruth is a complicating factor for Mr. Poloni Almoni. So what's going on? There's part of the law of redemption says if there is a widow of childbearing age, then the redeemer is required not just to purchase the land, but to marry the widow. But, but here's where it really gets interesting. The purpose of marrying the widow is not just to provide and protect for her. That was part of it. The, purchase, the purpose of marrying the widow was so when that widow bore a child, bore a son, that son would inherit the property that was the widow's first husband's. I know this sounds strange to our ears, but this is exactly why Boaz is saying in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, who's the dead? It's the deceased husband, Ruth's first husband, in his inheritance. So the idea here is that Ruth, when she would have a child, that child would legally be considered the offspring of her first husband, and he would inherit the property. Again, I I know this is not the way we do things. It's it's a little bit like this. The Redeemer is is almost a surrogate father in a way, but the property is not going to go to him. The property is going to go to the son that will come from this union. So here's the problem for the closer relative. The goal of these redemption laws was not to add wealth to the redeemer. The goal was to preserve the property of the deceased for the next generation. So he's saying, I can't afford to do this. Like, I can't afford to take on both of these widows and not get any gain from it. I I, I thought you were just going to let me buy this land and I was going to be able to have this land to pass this part of my estate. But if it's not going to come to me, I can't afford to take this risk. So we learn... Here, redemption comes 
with a cost. It was a sacrificial act of love and service, not an opportunity for personal gain. The closest relative says, I can't do that. It'll cost me too much. He turns to Boaz and says, you do it. I think Boaz knew exactly what this man was going to say. Boaz had counted the cost. So that's the first part of our text. I labeled it the opportunity because what this guy first thought was an opportunity for financial gain turns out to be a different kind of opportunity. It's an opportunity for sacrifice, an opportunity for love, to, to, to pour oneself out for another. And this man says, I, I can't do that. You do it. Let's look at part two of the text, the transaction. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. I love the fact that we get this little detail. You know, it makes it whole come to life. You can picture what's going on. I think it's also interesting that the narrator goes out of his way to explain this one, because what that means is this was a custom that had fallen out, you know, was no longer done at the time that the story was being written down. Now, there's been a lot of speculation. What does the sandal represent? I don't know. No one knows for sure, but but here's what I think is going on. The taking off the sandal gave a visual memory for the witnesses. This was an oral culture. There wasn't a whole lot that was written down. So imagine, you know, the elders that were watching this or the other people in the crowd that had watched this. If, if weeks later or months later, someone says, hold on a minute, there's some confusion. Did Mr. Poloni Almoni give the right to Boaz to buy this land or not? And the, 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 the guys must say, I don't remember exactly what was said, but I do remember he took off his sandal. And that created a memory. Let's try this out. Do we have any elders in the room? Current elders, inactive elders, former elders. Come on, I know we got some elders in the room. Any elders in the room? Seriously, not an elder in the room? I don't know if I can do this. Like the first service had all the elders. Okay, y'all are witnesses, okay? All of you are witnesses. I, I, I'm gonna take off my shoe to represent the fact that I would like to purchase a stick of gum from someone. For, I'm serious about this, okay? You're all witnesses. I have a dollar in my pocket. Who has a stick of gum? I, and don't leave me hanging here. Okay, you got a stick of gum? Okay, let's do this. My shoe is off. I'm gonna pull out the dollar. Can you come forward? Because I can't come off the stage. All right, what's your name? Carrie. Carrie has a stick of gum and she's gonna give this to me in exchange for $1. You are all witnesses. Here you go. Thank you, Carrie. Perfect. Let the record show. The shoe is off. Now, kind of silly, but two weeks from now, someone's going to say, what was Rob's Mother's Day message on? You're going to say, I don't remember, but I remember the shoe. And that's my point. (laughs) I rest my case. I think that's what the sandal was all about. Now, I'm going to hold on to this, Carrie, until the end of the service, because then I'm going to need it before I talk to people. I can keep it. I hope so. I bought it. Then Boaz, we're in verse nine. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Those were the two sons who had also died. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. There is something rather wonderful happening here that fits in our theme we've talked about throughout this series. There's more than meets the eye. Did you notice two times he references this phrase, the name of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. If you look deeper, what you see is going on here is much more than a legal transaction. Way back in the beginning of our study of Ruth, when the three patriarchs died, you know, Elimelech died and then his two sons died, we talked about how tragic that was. And one of the statements we made is, it's always tragic when someone dies. But the Hebrews who would have heard this story would have thought these deaths were particularly tragic because there was no one left to carry on the family line. And for a Hebrew, there is nothing more tragic than for a family to cease to exist. Now fast forward to chapter four. What I want you to see that Boaz is doing is he's blowing oxygen on the dying embers of this family unit. It's not an exaggeration to say Boaz is in essence resurrecting the name of this family that it might persist. He is saying, I will be the one that will step in and make sure that this family does not go extinct. That what will be passed on to the next generation will be the name of the father and the name of the grandfather and the land that rightly belongs to them. Boaz was bringing back to life a family that nearly disappeared. And, and this is what's been blowing my mind this week. Although Boaz was the redeemer, the redemption belonged to God. God was accomplishing this through Boaz. God had given Boaz care and compassion, unusual care and compassion for a foreign woman, Ruth, and her old mother-in-law, Naomi, who had nothing. Boaz was a physical embodiment of God's Hesed love for those two. Now there's one more part to go. We've talked about the opportunity, the transaction. Now let's look at the blessing. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be announced in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We were down there earlier singing the blessing over those families and the children. I thought how appropriate that we're in this text this morning as we're dedicating and blessing these families. I also thought the kind of blessing we use today is a little bit different than what we have in this text. You know, do you notice all the names? Let's count them. I want to count the, the names, not just of people, but places. In two verses, you have Rachel, Leah, Israel, who's a person and a nation. Ephrathah, that was the original name of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the, the name even we know it now. Bethlehem means house of bread. Perez, Tamar, 
Judah. I think that's eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight names in two verses. What I want you to understand is the most significant blessing these people could speak over Ruth and Boaz was that their names would be established and remembered like these names. They were speaking blessings using the names of their ancestors and their places. It came true. Here you and I are 3,000 years after this story took place and we know the name Ruth. We know the name Boaz. In fact, we know them so well, they're more well-known to us than some of the names in this list. What I want you to see is God accomplished the blessing. In fact, we saw God earlier use the actions of Boaz to accomplish his providence. I think now we're seeing God use the words of people to accomplish his providence. The blessing came true. Now, if you put the whole passage together, what you start to see is part of what the narrator is intending to communicate is, look at whose names ended up being remembered and look at whose name was not remembered. Poloni Almoni. Now we can really start to see why the narrator called him this. The guy who was so concerned about preserving his estate doesn't even have his name to remember him by today. Meanwhile, Boaz, who sacrificed his own wealth to embody the love of God, is still being talked about today. And let's not forget Ruth, a young woman from Moab. Hey, she's the lowest of the low. She's a foreigner. She doesn't belong there. She's part of an enemy people of Israel. She's young. She's a woman. A young woman from Moab has a book of the Bible in her name. I think that's remarkable. I think that's marvelous. Why? Why does Ruth, of all people, have a book of the Bible remembered her, remembering her? Because she embodied God's love. She did the will of God, whether she realized it or not, she was representing the heart of God to Naomi. And Boaz was representing the heart of God to Ruth and to Naomi. And God is saying, because of that, I have established their name. Now, how can we connect this to us? Go back to what we talked about two weeks ago we made this statement, the providence of God often flows through human hands. And I've, I haven't stopped thinking about that in the last two weeks. Because if you really think about what that means, providence, God's in control of all things. But usually God doesn't work in miraculous ways. He does sometimes still today. But usually the way that God accomplishes his will is not through divine intervention. It is typically, it is usually through human beings. We were put here on the earth to be his image. That means to represent him, to act on his behalf. So in the book of Ruth, 
God's direct actions are almost completely absent, but his providence is everywhere. Most often, I'd say it this way, God accomplishes his work through human beings who are willing to align their actions and their words with God's heart. And what is God's heart? Hesed love. Faithful, loyal, steadfast love in a relationship with people. Now, I want you to think about the implications of this for a minute, and this is where we're going to kind of land the plane this morning and, and, and apply it to our lives. I, I invite you to consider the power of your words and your actions when they are aligned with God's heart. Do you see that Boaz, who was a mere man, had the power to align his actions and his words with God's heart in such a way that he redeemed an outcast and brought her into fellowship with the living God? Do you see that Ruth, who was a young woman, had the power to align her actions and her words with God's heart in such a way that she brought fullness into the empty life of her mother-in-law and, as we'll see next week, bore a child who would carry on the family line of her dead husband. We greatly underestimate the power of our words and actions when they are aligned with the heart of God. I believe God's looking for men and women to be his agents of hesed, his agents of sacrificial loyal love. And usually, we're a little more like Mr. So-and-so than we are Boaz. The invitation to life this morning is to consider whose emptiness does God want you to fill? I want to encourage you this week to spend some time in prayer. And, you know, we, we put this on the screen as an application every week under this heading, an invitation to life, because I believe it's exactly that. So here's our invitation to life this week. Spend time in prayer for the needs of people you know. And as you pray, ask God to focus your mind on one of these people in whose life he wishes to actively demonstrate his love through you. God's got people in need on his heart, in his mind. He's going to bless them. He's going to remind them he is love. The main question is who will he use to do it? Will you put your hand up? Will you say, God, I want you to use me in that way? What an invitation to life that is. Uh, last week, I remember Lloyd said this, our fullest life is living to make others whole. I think that's right. We live to make others whole. And I would add, we do that in the name of God. What does it mean to do something in the name of God? As his representative, on his behalf. It's like, I'll be your hands and feet. I'll, I'll be the, the one who gives. I'll do it. In whose life is God calling you to be an agent of his Hesed love? If you picked up the communion elements on the way in, I want to encourage you to take those out. If you didn't get them, please take time right now. Stand up, go get them. I don't want you to miss out on celebrating this with us, this, your family of faith here this morning. And I'll give you a few minutes to do that. You don't have to be in a rush. And 
as some are getting their communion elements and others are taking them out, you can go ahead and peel back that first layer and don't eat the bread yet. Just hold it in your hand. I want to talk about it for just a minute or two. There's a connection to our text this morning in the Lord's Supper. God made human beings to represent his image by speaking and doing things that align with his heart. But we have often lived counter to that purpose. We have often instead pursued our own gain. We've been unwilling to love others when it cost us too much. Or we haven't had eyes to see the needs around us. Or we've been afraid to love them well. But Jesus came. And Jesus only and always spoke and did things that represented the heart of God. Jesus is the heart of God. Jesus' love come to earth. And so because Jesus lived that way on our behalf, you and I can be redeemed. We can be brought back into the family. And you're brought back into the family, not just for your own blessing. You're brought back into the family so that the love of God might flow through you. But it starts with you being brought into the family. So what you hold right now in your hand for all who've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ represents your redemption, represents the fact that Jesus came to redeem you, to bring you back into a permanent place in the family of God. And we eat the bread in remembrance of Christ. And take the cup in your hand. You can go ahead and peel back the foil. In a moment, we'll drink it together. But as you're looking at it and holding it right now, I want you to remember the cup represents the blood of Jesus. Just as what you hold in your hand is tangible, it's something you can taste. The blood of Jesus was tangible. He actually died. It really happened. He was willing to do that for us. And he did that for the joy that was set before him. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus' joy was us bringing us back into the family. Jesus is a sacrificial and joyful redeemer. We remember him as we drink. And Father, we thank you for our redemption that is full in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to be your servants, your vessels, your representatives, to tangibly embody and express your loyal, faithful love for people in need. Will you help us to do that? We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.